Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. beautiful time of worship as I was sitting there worshiping with you and I pray that you were worshiping at home wherever you're watching on your device. But remember the worship of the Lord is a privilege. It's something that we get to do. It's not something we have to do. It's not the music before the message, so to speak. It's an opportunity for us to offer back to the Lord praise and adoration, our hearts inclined towards heaven as we Turn our attention tonight to Hosea's chapter 8 and 9. As the prophet Hosea wrote these, of course, he was writing to the children of Israel. And so in a very direct way, they were applicable to them very specifically as as God's chosen people. But to the church, in a very general way, we still have uh, the same message spoken into our lives because there is a price for our sin. And here's the tragic thing about sin in the life of a believer in Hosea's day and time. It was the life of God's chosen people. But for us, because we're God's children by grace now, because we have actually been saved and the the price was paid in that sense so that we can go to heaven, I think in some ways the price is greater uh, for us who are God's children by grace than maybe it was during that day and time. And so it's important for us to realize how seriously God takes sin in the life of his people. That's not for us to wander in fear. It's not for us to look at these chapters and go, oh my goodness, you know, what a mess the, the children of Israel were. And if we get there, you know, will the Lord destroy us and wipe us out. That's not the point. The point is, is that God takes very seriously uh, how his bride lives her life, how we as the church uh, act in this world. And so we'll take two chapters tonight. Other fairly short, and so we should be able to get through these fairly easily in our time together. Would you join me? Let's pray, and let's take a little review really from chapter 7 because it sets the stage for what we'll see in both chapters 8 and 9. Father, we are grateful for words of warning, Lord, words that speak to us of uh, how much you desire for your people to live holy lives, lives that reflect your character and nature, lives that uh, look like what heaven would look like if heaven were actually brought here to this earth in its fullness. Lord, your goodness, your glory, your majesty. Lord, we pray that our character I would represent you well in this world. And so we give you tonight, and we pray that you'd speak to us. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So as we look back a little bit, specifically to chapter 7, but in a general way to chapter 6, we kind of had this court uh, scene. The judge is seated, the verdict is announced, an appeal is filed, And that verdict having been rendered and the sentence pronounced, basically God is reminding us, look, sin has a price. Not following God's law has a price. And that's not that we're saved by it in this age of grace, but we ought to be 
constantly seeking to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And what he wrote about how we should live our lives and how we should dedicate our lives to him in the Old Testament really still stands in a moral way, in moral guidance, and in character in our day and time. And so really the picture is, is compromise. If you remember in chapter 7, we had this series of similes. And the word simile just could simply be looked at as it is like. In other words, something being similar to. And so we, we saw these five different things that Hosea reminded us that the child of God in that day and time, Israel, should not be like. In other words, things that we were warned, if you are really walking with the Lord, then you should not be walking this way or acting this way. And in that chapter 7 scenario, we saw that Israel had a really difficult time with compromise. They had compromised with the world. They had begun to act the world's way. They had begun to speak the world's way. They had begun to worship uh, the world's way. They were no longer set apart. They weren't saints in that sense. They desired to have things their own way. Instead of walking with the Lord, they began to walk away from the Lord and no longer keep his character. And so their lives became very unbalanced in conduct, and they became very immature uh, in character. And so we had these similes given to us, and the first of which was to act your age. As children of grace, in our day and time, in the age of grace, we're, we're to act spiritually mature. We've been saved by grace. We don't have this law hanging over us, though it is our standard, it's not the way that we relate to God any longer. And so we should actually have an easier time, if you will, of acting our age. We should be more mature as children who walk in God's amazing grace. And so the nation of Israel had been secretly losing her strength in that sense. She was getting older, and instead of getting stronger, she was getting weaker. Israel was no longer looking at the word of God, the things that God had said and required of them, and said, you know, I want to live that way. They were turning to the world, and so they were becoming more immature. It's rather like the child who goes into the kitchen, and mom and dad have well stocked the, the cabinets in the kitchen with food that's good and healthy, and every single time the child goes in, instead of maturing, saying, you know, well, maybe I should eat my vegetables and I should make sure I have a well-rounded diet, goes into the treat cabinet and feeds itself only on the sweet things. Israel was looking at everything as, as something that was sugary and they, they wanted it to taste uh, in that sense as something that would, we would look at and say, well, that's fine every once in a while, but it's not the way you should live your life. And I think this is a problem for us today. And so that first simile, being, being a child, being a spiritual baby, uh, a second thing which is tied to the first, which is being foolish or immature. And Israel was equated to this silly dove, and it just kind of looked like it was hiding in plain sight. That was really clear that they had turned to the flesh and they turned away from the spirit. And so Hosea said, look, don't be like that. Don't be foolish. Don't be childish. And then he said, don't be unhinged. Don't be easily moved. Don't be tossed by every wave that comes your way, every new thing that you know, just pops up on the horizon. Be steadfast and immovable, abounding in that work of the Lord. Be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. Exactly what he told the children of Israel 
as, as the book of Leviticus written by Moses is, gives this, this peace to them of the puzzle of their life, look, I've set you apart. You're supposed to be a nation unto me, so I want you to live the way I would have you live. I was right there with you. Live that way. And instead, they had a leader like Solomon who had, who had led the children of Israel to believe that if you just made peace with the world, if you did things the world's way, that somehow that was going to make you well-pleasing to God. And it was foolish. It was childish. And they were moved by everything that came their way. And a fourth thing, and this I think is, again, also important to us in our day and time, instead of drawing from the strength of the Spirit and drawing from their relationship with the Lord, drawing on that which could be depended upon, which is God himself, they were drawing their strength from the world, and because of that, they were weakened. They were walking in weakness. They were, they were more concerned about what the world thought than what God thought. And that's always a trap. It's a trap for believers today. It was a trap for Israel then. And then finally, uh, of these similes, they, they had turned their attention uh, towards the things that we would look at and say they were self-deceived. They, they were trampling the covenant of God. They, they had rebelled against the Lord, and somehow they had managed to make evil good and good evil. And so Hosea basically says to him, look, it's time for us to call sin what it is. It's time for us to blow the trumpet. It's time for the watchman to really watch and say, look, this is a problem. And in our day and time, I think we kind of get into this place to where we look at the biblical watchman as someone who is almost more of a, a political operative, or maybe they were looking at just simply the Assyrian army and they were worried about the physical harm that might come to the children of Israel, when I think really the, the most wonderful translation of that word watchman from the Old Testament is someone who watches over the spiritual health of the nation. Someone who watches over the church to see that the church is being what God would have us be. And so in that sense, these similes kind of paint a picture for us of, of the children of Israel as they are, they are now in this place where they've sinned against the Lord. The Lord has rejected their appeal. And they're now going to have to pay the price for the choices that they've made. This is something we can learn from. Because here's the tragedy with sin. Just like with Israel's condition, the devil never tells you the price that you're going to pay for that sin. He, he will never let you know exactly how painful, how hard it's going to be. He tries to convince you that sin is going to be pleasurable forever. That if you just embark on that journey of pleasing yourself and doing what you want to do, that you can make yourself happy. And because you make yourself happy, you're actually going to be better off for it. And really the truth is this. Sin kills you a little bit at a time. It destroys your life. It may seem like it feels good, or it may seem like it brings some good into your life, when in fact it's actually slowly killing you. The children of Israel were dying a slow death in that sense by walking away from the Lord. They had a condition that was marked by sin. And so we'll pick up now in chapter 8, uh, the first six verses, and notice how this sets your trumpet to your mouth. And he's saying, look, it's, it's time to, to blow the horn. It's time to 
cause people to be alarmed. It's time to draw attention to what's going on here. You, you, you can't escape what's going to happen next. It's time to set the trumpet to your mouth, for he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, that he, in this case, the Assyrian army has come, and then circle the word or highlight the word or underline the word in your in your Bible, because, because there's a reason for this. God isn't being arbitrary. He's not being capricious. He's not putting a test to them that they couldn't pass. It wasn't that God was reacting just simply because he was angry or upset. There was a reason, because they have transgressed my covenant. They've rebelled against my law. The reason this is important is God had made promises to Israel, and Israel had made promises to God. They said, of all these things, we will forsake none of them. We will do everything you've asked. They made a promise to God. And notice that God says, look, I'm holding you accountable for what I've shown you. I've shown you my law. You've said you would do it, and then you've turned right around and not done that. So he's not holding them accountable for what they don't know. He's holding them accountable for what they do know. And for what they honored the Lord by initially saying, we will keep your commandments. This is why the writer of Hebrews said, it's better that you not know the Lord at all than to know him and walk away in sin from his grace. God takes very seriously the covenant that he has made with us and with his children, his chosen ones, Israel, and with us as his kids by grace. They rebelled against my law. And so he says, Israel will cry to me. And then he tells what they'll cry. My God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. For they have set up kings, but not by me. God's saying, look, you chose your own kings after the things of the world. You didn't vote for godly rulers would be a way that we would look at it in our day and time. You decided to go the way of the world. You were looking for kings after your own making. And they made princes. But I didn't acknowledge them, says the Lord. From their silver and their gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. It's basically like they're saying, look, you didn't want me. You tried a poor substitute. You made your own God. I'm saying, no, I'm not accepting your worship because that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm holy. That's not holiness. You're going after something that's not me. I'm rejecting that form of worship. And he says, verse 5, your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is actually aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? Attaining to innocence is another way of saying, how long will it be until you actually repent? In other words, attain unto. Innocence. Actually do the work of saying, we're going to stop doing what we've been doing. We're going to turn towards the Lord with firm heart and vigor and intent. For from Israel is even this, a workman made it. It is not God, but the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. You see, the truth is, during this time, the Assyrian army was descending on them. 
One of the signs of the Assyrian army, much like it would be for Rome later, is is the eagle. And the house of the Lord here uh, in these first six verses is the nation Israel. And the people were considered then during that time God's dwelling place. And in fact, God had revealed himself specifically to Israel. And so they had something that no other nation had. They had a covenant with God. And in a very similar way, we today who know the Lord have confessed Jesus Christ as Savior, we have a relationship that you cannot get any other way. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. And without making that profession, you can't be saved. And so in that sense, as we are the bride of Christ, God has said, look, this is how I want you to live. He gave us his word. When you, when you hold your Bible, you know, we often make little tiny axioms like the Bible, God's basic instruction manual before leaving earth. You know, this is, this is how God wants to speak to us. And so as we pick up our Bibles, as we read them, as we read through what God says about his character and nature, there's going to be an interesting thing that will happen to you. You're not going to go to the New Testament and find some new morality. You're going to find God's same morality he had in the Old Testament. It's going to be expressed in grace, but God's character didn't change between the Testaments. He didn't all of a sudden start accepting things that were evil in the Old Testament. Now they're, they're okay in the New Testament. No, the same ways of living, God wanted to be alone our God. That's why the first command is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God's jealous. He wants us to live for him, to him, unto him in that sense. But what happened to Israel is they're going, well, you know, mm, you know, this golden calf thing, this might be kind of okay. I mean, sure, you know, maybe on Sunday we can worship God, but you know, the rest of the days of the week, I mean, the guys that have the golden calf, they really have it going on. They've got lots of stuff that they get to do that we don't get to do. And we like what they do because that looks a whole lot more fun than the things that God has told us we should be. They seem to be fine getting drunk. They seem to be fine divorcing their wives. They seem to be fine living the party life. They seem to be fine stealing from each other. They seem to be fine living in, in abject uh, misdirection from the things of God. You can just go the other way and it'll be okay. And God's saying, mm-mm. No, I made a covenant with you. And just so that we know what he's saying, he says, you transgressed my law. In other words, he's referring to the actual law of Moses. He said, look, I, I gave you instruction. Jeroboam was supposed to set up the children of Israel to be a theocracy. In other words, their, their political system and their their worship was supposed to be one and the same. They were to worship God and God would actually govern them. That's what the word Israel actually means, is governed by God. It's the easiest way to understand it. So the 10 tribes in the north were supposed to be governed by God. But instead of being governed by God, they were governed by their flesh. And so while God was to be worshipped in the tabernacle, while God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem in the temple, while God was to be worshipped by the Jewish people, they kind of kept their own little golden calves. It's like, well, yeah, over here on, you know, we'll do that part of the time, but we're going to do this the rest of the time. And so God reminds them, look, you're not supposed to have any gods before me. 
My dwelling place is my dwelling place. That's where I am. And there is holiness. And to that end, what happened with the children of Israel is they actually set up two calves. They set up one in Dan in the north, and they set the other one up at Bethel in Samaria. And so they kind of hedged their bet. It's like, well, we'll do kind of what God wants, and we'll kind of do what the world asks us to do too. You can't do that as a child of God. You couldn't do it as national Israel, and we can't do it today. We can't do it tonight. We're supposed to be set apart unto the Lord. And so in our passage, the first six verses, your calf, O Samaria, has cast you off. In other words, you can't, you can't be in both places. You can't worship God and worship the world. And so the second thing we see here, after seeing how Israel had sinned, we see what Israel was sowing, what they had sown. They sowed to the wind, verse 7. They reaped the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. And if it should produce, aliens will swallow it up. In other words, what you're planting, you're going to also reap. What you have sown, you will reap. Exactly what Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 says. If you sow to the flesh, that's what you're going to reap. That's what you're going to get. And even if it does bring up some fruit, it's going to be bad fruit, and your neighbors are going to steal it. Israel is swallowed up, verse 8. Now they're among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which there is no pleasure. And this is such a weird thing because we wouldn't look at it this way. But during those days and times, they had vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And so in your home, the vessels of honor were the very best of the things that you had. Somebody made that piece of pottery, and it was the very best one. But if you needed a chamber pot, if you needed something something to go to the bathroom in at night, you took the vessel of dishonor. That's what you did that business in. And he says, the children of Israel are going to be like that. They're going to be like a vessel in which there's dishonor. There's no honor in there. Not something that the Lord would be proud of and say, look at that. There's something the Lord would say, that's what you go to bathroom in at night. That's not the example that we want to set for the world, that we're unworthy of the Lord putting treasure in. We should put something else in it that's not good. Israel was swallowed up, he says. For they've gone up to Assyria. And he now gives some very specific things. They're like a wild donkey. Alone by itself, Ephraim has hired lovers. In other words, sought out prostitutes. And yes, they've been hired. They themselves became prostituted in the nations. They'd do anything for money, basically. Now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. And so he says to them, look, I, I want to give you four things that you can think about. You've sown to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. That's the tragic consequences of what was going on in the life of the children of Israel, and it will not be escaped by his people who live life. Now by grace, through faith. Wild donkeys in, in the Middle East are 
there's not a lot to eat. So if there's a wild donkey and it survives, it's also very strong, very headstrong. They're very unruly. They're obstinate. They're quick enough to outrun a horse in short distances. They, they can go quickly from place to place. They normally roam in bands. Here in our local mountains, in San Bernardino Mountains, you actually find uh, herds of donkeys that have survived since the, the days when mining used to occur in, in the Big Bear area in the Holcomb Valley. And, and you get a pack of those together, and they're, they're pretty formidable. They're tough. They're resilient. But you isolate one, you let it get a little weak, a little sick, it gets out of its comfort zone, easy pickings for the coyotes and the mountain lions. And in the same way, what God is saying is, look, you, you, you've sown to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. You, you're going to not deceive God in that sense. God's not going to be mocked. He, that's what you sowed, that's what you're going to reap. And so Hosea sees this, he says, look, you've been sowing idolatry. You've, you've been sowing political alliances. You're, you're trying to sow something to the world, hoping that the world can give you a good harvest. And in fact, you're just going to reap what the world can give you, which is nothing. It's not going to go good. You think it's going to go good. The truth of the matter is, as far as the children of Israel were seeing uh, what was going on in the north, they were going to be pretty much obliterated by Assyria. They weren't going to escape it. And no amount of alliances with Assyria was going to change that. But they thought it could. Why? Because they were trying to escape what God had asked of them, and that was for them to be holy. That was them to live lives that were well-pleasing to God. And so in that sense, they also became like this worthless pottery. There, there was no grain that they were produce, producing. There, there was nothing that they themselves were, were beautiful at. God was not looking at them going, wow, I want you to be like this vessel. God was saying, no, that's a broken pot. Don't put anything of value in that. And when we live lives that are displeasing to God, we're just like that broken pot. We're a worthless piece of pottery that God's not going to put treasure into. He's going to say, look, that's not a treasure-worthy vessel. Might be something you use as a chamber pot at night, but that, I'm not putting my treasure in that. We never want to get in that place. The compromise to the world cheapens us to where we're we're a, a piece of pottery that's not worthy of the, of the fragrance of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord. We're just simply useful for the refuse of this world. Hosea saw it. He said, look, I don't want you to make alliances. I don't want you to form a, a pack and try and hang out with the world. I want you to run from the world, not towards the world. Don't be in the world. And I surely don't want you to prostitute yourself. Don't sell yourself to the world. We should not be selling ourselves to the world. The church shouldn't be for sale. Israel wasn't supposed to be for sale. And they weren't supposed to be out looking for other lovers. They were supposed to be holy unto the Lord. 
instead of being faithful to her husband, which in Israel's case was Jehovah God, in our case, it's Jesus himself. Israel is saying, look, well, as long as the Gentile nations can give me something, as long as I can get something out, then it's worth it. I'll, I'll just be whatever they need me to be. And in that, that window, looking through that lens, God says, that's going to cost you. You're going to waste away. You're going to be judged. You're going to be found wanting, and, and the Assyrian army is going to be the hand of God to chastise you. At church, we never want to get to the place where God has to actually contemplate how he's going to chastise us because he chastens those whom he loves. He's not going to leave us in that place. He's always going to speak to us. When we're being disobedient and rebellious, he wants to just simply say, would you please turn around? Would you stop doing that? But if we make him, then he pulls out the heavier weaponry. Says, okay, you want what that what that brings? Then you're going to reap it. You're going to keep sowing it. That's what you're going to get. Next, we see where Israel actually was with God, where they stood. Verse eleven, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin. Now, I want you to notice what this says. They literally made places of worship where they would sin. Now, this may seem strange to you, but that would be the equivalent of setting up church and we put some beds in here so people can sleep with people they're not married to. Literally made altars where they could go and sin. They've become for him altars for sinning. They themselves, instead of their hearts being transformed by the hearing of the word and the doing of the word, they became really good at sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. In other words, instead of doing what God asked them to do, they were doing everything the world was asking. They were just doing it in church. And this is a tragedy that's alive and well in the church today. The church knows what God wants, but the church refuses to do it. And instead, we do what the world wants us to do. I'm tired of listening. Well, you know, we now have a microbrewery in our, instead of a coffee shop. We're going to get together and have a little cocktail party after church is over. You know, if you don't like the person you're married to, well, there's always other choices here in the church. Like, that's what Israel did. That's why they got in trouble. It's like, hello, wake up. I gave you my law, and now you think that the law is weird, but the world is okay. That's never worked out for God's children. Didn't work out for Israel, won't work out for us as children by grace through faith. Verse 13, for the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. Instead of sacrificing to the Lord, they sacrifice like the world does, and then it's like they're having a barbecue. It's like they've turned church into a party. But the Lord does not accept them. And now he's going to remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Look, you don't want to put yourself in this place. 
Notice how this starts. Look, I gave you the great things of my law. You chose to do exactly what I told you not to do. You're doing the very things which I commanded you, you shall not do. You made a party out of that lifestyle. Here's the problem. That's not what I want. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to remember your iniquity. How is that going to happen? They shall return to Egypt. Focal point here in Hosea. That, that old life that they'd been delivered from. It was a life of bondage. A picture for us of the world. For Israel, look at verse 14. It's so tragic. Israel's forgotten his maker. Built temples. Judah's fortified multiple cities. But I'll send fire on the cities. It should devour his palaces. You see, there's only supposed to be one altar. And in Israel's case, it was actually in Jerusalem. They were allowed to have another one in Samaria, but it really wasn't the official altar. There was supposed to be one altar of sacrifice. It was in Jerusalem. And God's saying, look, you keep doing things your own way, and it's produced in you this incredible sense of entitlement that you get to live life the way you want. Why the Apostle Paul says, look, I've been bought and paid for with a price. The life that I live, I now live for him. My life is not even mine anymore. It belongs to God. I'm supposed to live for him, to him, through him. And so these incredible, tragic consequences of continuing in repetitive sin. We're not talking about occasional slip here. I'm talking about something that you're genuinely sorry for, something that you could say you slipped and fell in. Israel was going the wrong way. They knew the right way. They're going the wrong way, and they're really good at going the wrong way. Now, that's not God approving. That's God giving you a whole lot of grace, and you better take that grace as a way to turn from those things because grace is available to us when we repent and when we humbly turn to the Lord. But we don't find God's grace in these situations when we just keep going the wrong direction. If he punished Israel, he's still going to punish us. You, you may get in, as James said, by the, by the fire, but it's not going to be a pretty journey. And so chapter 9 now uh, begins to, to give us this other picture of Israel now returning. Verse 1, chapter 9, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other people, for you have played the harlot against your God. You've made love for hire on every threshing floor. And this is a pretty graphic picture. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail her. In other words, you, you, you've so far turned from the Lord that things that should just be work to you, you've turned that into some type of thing that's, that is an anathema to God. You, Really there? They shall not dwell in the Lord's land. What a tragedy. God said, look, this is my land, and I'm giving it to you as a perpetual inheritance. My only request is you honor me and serve me. Puts them in this beautiful place and says, look, this is yours. But if you want to keep going after the world, you want to keep heading towards Egypt, 
you want to keep doing things the world's way, then you're going to be bewildered, you're going to be confused, you're going to be going the wrong direction, and you're not going to have any idea what it is that's going on because you're going to go right back into the very bondage that you've been delivered from. Why would anyone want to do that? Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. I'll not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall the sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like the bread of mourners to, this, to them, and all who eat shall be defiled. Their bread shall be like their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. Oh, well, what will you do in the appointed day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? In other words, when the final day comes, when the day of the Lord comes, when your time is over, for indeed they're gone because of destruction, and Egypt shall gather them up, and Memphis shall bury them. Memphis was one of the necropolis cities of the Pharaonic kings, of the pharaohs. You're going to be buried in Egypt. They're not going to be able to distinguish your coming and going from that of the Egyptian pharaohs. The nettle shall possess their valuables of silver. In other words, your, your stuff that's valuable to you is going to end up in a place that no one would ever want to go. If you've ever been in stinging nettle, nobody looks to go find a patch of stinging nettle. Let's go look for silver in there. You want nothing to do with it. The thorns shall be in their tents. Same exact picture. Different perspective a tad, but same picture. It's like nobody wants thorns under their tent floor or in their tent. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and with great enmity, the watchman of Ephraim is with my God. A true prophet, a fowler's snare in all of his ways, in enmity in the house of his God. But they're deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. And he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. God is saying, look, when your spiritual leaders, when your prophets, when those sent to you by God become the least spiritual people in your, in your world, you're in real trouble. That's why God has, has hedged in so many things with the Spirit. He said, look, I understand why you gravitate towards these things. I understand why you would like to have a more spiritual experience, so to speak. You want things more to be in ecstasy. That was the way of the world. They looked at the way that the, the prophets of Baal allowed everyone to chant and scream and yell and drink in their services and have prostitutes. And they're going, well, we like their services better than ours. I don't know, worship like that. I mean, that's way better than what we got. The only problem was there was no God in it. It was flesh, it was carnal. To some degree in our day and time, you know, people exalt certain spiritual gifts. You know, I'm going to speak in tongues or I'm going to prophesy or whatever. And God hymns those things in because he knows we gravitate towards spectacular things. And so he says, don't prophesy. If you're going to speak in tongues, you better have somebody that's going to sit there and interpret it. If there's no interpreter, don't do it. Rather than lying on the 
inspiration of God. They were relying on these experiences. They're saying, well, look, at that, that must be of the Lord. I mean, everybody wants to do that. In other words, they were trusting in the arm of flesh. And that type of message then and that type of message today only leads towards confusion. Fruitlessness. Rottenness comes out of it. Barrenness is another way. Verse 10, for I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits of the fig tree in its first season, but they went to Baal Peor. I'll speak to this in, in just a moment. But this was the most vile foreign God that Israel ever encountered. And they separated themselves to that shame. And they became an abomination like the thing they loved. In other words, they were so into this worship of Baal Peor and all of its paganness that they became like the God they worshiped. That's the problem with worship. When you worship a false God, you eventually become like that false God. And as for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Look, God's going to do them a favor. They're not even going to have children. They're so messed up, they shouldn't reproduce, is basically what Hosea is saying. You guys should not have kids. And though they bring up their children, yet they'll bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Their kids will be so far from the Lord because mom and dad was so far from the Lord that God's going to say it'd be better if you didn't have kids. What a tragedy. But maybe that's a little true in our world today. Because there are Christian parents that are leading their kids and following Baal Peor. Well, you know, I just don't love your mom anymore. I got to go find myself. I got to go do my own thing. You know, I'm really getting tired of going to work every day. There's a little of Baal Peor. And we wonder why those kids grow up and they are not acting the way we would hope they would act. They don't know the things that they should know. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ever wondered why when we kick God out of our schools... We kicked him out of our governance. We said, well, we want everything else, but we don't want you. It's interesting to me that our birth rate has almost fallen to the place where we're not replacing our population in this country. Maybe God's just saying, it'd be better if you didn't have kids. You're going to keep going that direction. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them because of their evil deeds, and I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. For all their princes are rebellious, for Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. 
Now, this is, this is insane. This is like, can't even imagine God saying this. It gives you an idea of how bad it must have been that God would say, look, not only do I not want you to have kids, if you have them, it'd be better that they die than keep that sin going. My God will cast them away. They did not obey him. They should be wanderers among the nations. This God, Baal Peor, was a, it's the most foul of all of the heathen gods. Those shrines were the first shrines that Israel encountered when they came into the land. It was so bad that in the book of Numbers in chapter 25, we have that particular God called out by name. Israel remained in this acacia grove and began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And and Israel was joined to this God, Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was against them. And for sake of time, let me just tell you what it says there in verse 9 of Numbers chapter 25. And it says there, and those who died in the plague because of that sin, numbered 24,000. That when the children of Israel followed after the world's ways in that way, when they went towards the world instead of towards God, when they did things the world's way and they brought that into the church, in effect, God said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't even want you to have children. I don't want you to reproduce. If you do, I'm actually going to take your kids from you. And the children of Israel had already been through this. They knew it. They knew what the result was. Moses said to the judge of Israel, let every one of you kill his men and all who are joined to Baal Peor. Moses sends the guys out and says, look, this is so bad. We got to go take everybody out. Finally, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, sees all this and he, and he rises up and he takes his javelin in hand and he went after the men of Israel and, and just started thrusting them through. It's like, this is such an abomination to God that God says there's no remedy for it. We can't fix this. It's so bad. It's so inculcated into society and so absorbed into the culture of the nation. The nation is so vile that we're going to have to start over. Very similar to what happened in the days of Noah. The very thing that Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, look, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. Church, when evil gets into the church, when the church no longer stands for what God stands for, when we become lawbreakers instead of law keepers, you have to remember that God has given us all kinds of opportunity to do the right thing. And so he says to them here in Hosea chapter 9, I'll drive them out of my house. They're going to wander among the nations. Where did Israel stand with God? They didn't. They didn't stand with God. They were going the wrong way. They were doing the wrong thing. They weren't with God at all. They were making allegiances and alliances with the world. They were heading into absolute abject poverty, both spiritually and physically. And God says, if that's what you want, go for it. 
And I guess the question that comes to my mind when I think about these chapters, and one of the reasons that we're covering so much of this is it's hard to hear. It has a very narrow message. It's not one that you want to preach on, teach on every night. It's not something that you want God to be made known for. But in the back of every believer's mind should be the understanding that God takes seriously sin in the life of his children. And so we can't go there. We can't keep doing these things. We can't keep rejecting God and expect God to bless us. In fact, we should expect him to chastise us, punish us. Sometimes I look at the world and the way things are going in our world, and I go, God's actually been really gracious that he didn't wipe us out. God's been really good that the things that we've done, he has not extracted the price that he could. And in fact, to his own people, Israel, he did way worse things to them than he's allowed to happen. We think this coronavirus thing is the worst thing in the world. Or some of the problems that we face, especially injustice, racial injustice, it's terrible, it's awful, it shouldn't exist. But could it be that God's saying, you know, if you keep doing things the way you're doing it, you're going to have problems like this and they're going to take you out. Maybe God's calling the church back to worshiping the Lord instead of worshiping at some other altar. But grace is always available to people who are willing to repent. But when you ask yourself the question, why would anyone want to return to bondage? All you got to do is look at the children of Israel. In this particular book, in the book of Hosea, he, he mentions Egypt 13 times. And those 13 times fall into three very distinct categories. He was making references to the past, to the present, and to the future. Uh, and you can see it very clearly if you just go through this little tiny book. And why is that important? Because Egypt represents to the church what the world is to us. That's what the world is. The world is trouble. It's what we've been delivered from. It's what we should never want to be. It's the thing we should be trying to run away from, not run towards. And so the prophet Hosea sees this contrast. He says, look, you got delivered from bondage of Egypt. Now you're going to get delivered into bondage through Assyria because you wouldn't stay out of bondage. You went back to the world, and now you're going to get it again. Man, how dumb do we have to be to want to return to the bondage of Egypt? The children of Israel did it. And yet, imagine that the children of Israel have the only monotheistic relationship with God on the face of the earth. They actually have a temple where God is worshipped. And all these beautiful things that if you were to go into the temple courtyard, you walk through this multicolored gate, recognizing that anyone can come in, surrounded by a white linen fence, recognizing the holiness of God. The holiness of God is where you meet God. That there is an altar for the sacrifice of your sins, that you could be cleansed in the bronze laver, that every tribe and tongue was represented by the bread that should, of the show bread, that your Prayers could be offered up to God and God would hear them and that God wanted to shine the light of the world and you would walk into that temple and go, man, God loves me. Well, they say, ah, we don't want that. 
We'd rather have prostitutes. We'd rather live like Egypt lives. I mean, they got pharaohs. They got big stone monuments. We want some of those. And God say, no, I want you to worship me by sacrifice. It's going to be messy. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be burning. That's how I want you to worship me. I don't really like that. Let's go back to Baal Peor. Jews had heard by this time the law for centuries. The temple itself had been standing since the time of Solomon. And yet Ephraim is building altars for the purpose of sinning. God forbid that the church of today become like Israel of old. If you, if you read this in a modern context, the church had become a house of prostitution, of ill repute. The church itself had become prostitutes. Instead of trusting the Lord to protect the, the nation from Assyria, they said, well, we want to be like the nations. We want to be like the people who are about to destroy us. And they became then like the world during that harvest season when the prostitutes would go to the threshing floor and they would sleep with the men that were there to guard the grain and so they could get what they want by giving whatever someone else wanted. It was just exactly the opposite of their relationship with the Lord. People ended up, because of it, in a foreign land. People ended up unclean. People ended up with no children. People ended up with no inheritance. People ended up in a terrible place. And so the lesson here, these two chapters together, is we need to stay clear of the world. Recognize the world for what it is. It's diseased. It's dangerous. It ultimately can be deadly. And we're to have nothing to do with it. God's people are supposed to be set apart for him. And I pray that in this time where we're obviously getting an opportunity to reflect on who we are and what we are and why we do what we do and how we live the way we live and why we live that way, that the church would come out of this going, ask for me in my house. I'm just going to serve the Lord. I don't need what the world has. I don't want what the world has. It doesn't mean you can't have a nice car and a nice house, nice clothes, food on the table, but it means that we worship exactly one God. We don't worship the world. We don't worship what the world has. We worship the Lord Jesus and him alone do we serve. Amen. Father, we thank you for this lesson, which is admittedly hard to hear. Or it's almost terrifying, actually. It's frightening to, to think that you can be this severe while at the same time being loving and kind. Because even your judgment is, is loving. 
the penalty that you extract is, is in kindness and gentleness and meekness and self-control. And so, Lord, we know you're serious about sin, especially sin in the life of people who know you by grace and through faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd make us holy as you're holy, that there'd be one altar in our homes, in our hearts, and that's you, Jesus, that you alone we would serve, that our lives would be marked by your character and not this world, that we would never return to Egypt, that it would scare us, it'd frighten us, that we'd look at it with disdain and see it for what it is. And so, God, we give you afresh and anew our lives. Lord, help us to stay far away from the things of this world. Help us to reject sin. Help us to never give ourselves to another, but keep ourselves holy for you. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us enough to die for us. Pray that you would bless us as we endeavor to live lives that are pleasing to you as we await your return. And we ask, Lord, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come get us. We're ready. We want to go home. Make us a bride that's white, pure, and ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.